0: We are are the the Nonprofit Collective Podcast,
1: bringing together voices to explore and inspire the nonprofit world. So, thank you all for coming out. We are at Think Coffee doing our podcast launch party uh, to celebrate eight successful episodes that Anna, Sophia, and I have done. We're super excited about the just support that we've received from our friends and this community and are excited to continue to explore and inspire the nonprofit world by bringing voices to a platform to discuss what's going on in our industry. So tonight we're going to be talking to Will and Katie on the topic of fundraising. Uh, they'll talk a little bit about their background, uh, what got them into fundraising, some of their opinions on fundraising in our industry, and then we'll open it up to the audience. Uh, and I will pass it off to my co-host, Anna Sophia to start.
2: Thank you, Brianna. So I want to start just by, if you could introduce yourselves, tell us a little bit about who you are and then where you work and what you currently do.
3: Thank you. Hello, I am William Mooney Sloniker, or just Will, henceforth, and I am currently the program officer for direct response fundraising at Catholic Charities of New York. So what I'm responsible for is basically managing one of the larger donor audiences that supports Catholic Charities. I send out about 800,000 pieces of mail each year, the vast majority of which gets thrown out. And since I'm in charge of digital fundraising, I also send out about 800,000 emails each year, most of which go unopened or get deleted. And somehow I raise money despite all that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Hi, my name is Katie Lee. I work with the International Rescue Committee. We are a humanitarian organization working in crisis relief, mostly refugees. My role in the organization is the project manager for the fundraising campaign around our gala it's interesting work because it's a different model of a gala than a lot of other organizations so it's much more of like a non-sponsorship strategy working with ultra high net worth donors and making sure that the right asks are going to the right people from the right people bringing in multi-million dollars which is really exciting and unique for a gala.
2: So I want to hear your origin stories because I feel that most people who end up in fundraising did it without really meaning to, myself included. I was volunteering at a nonprofit and they made me write a grant report and then it just never ended from there and now 10 years later here I am. So I'd love to hear from you what brought you to development, why are you fundraising now and how did you end up at the organization that you're at?
3: yeah to to that point, I think a lot of people wind up in fundraising and the nonprofit sector rather organically. I myself I went to Boston College, which is a Jesuit school, and as a Jesuit school, it places a big emphasis on volunteering, Catholic social teaching kind of matthew twenty five I, w- I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink sort of that sort of ethos of Christianity. And as such, volunteering was a really big part of my college experience. I volunteered for four hours every week at a psychiatric inpatient unit at a local children's hospital and then spring breaks were usually spent on some kind of service trip. After four years of doing that, I really wanted to do some kind of service right after college. So I did an AmeriCorps term of service at an educational nonprofit in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It was a college access and success program. And I was reaching out to the matriculated college students, helping them to stay enrolled, make good progress towards their degree, you know, basically sort of prevent the kind of dropout situation. So I did that for about a year, but my desk in the office was situated next to a woman who was sort of the fundraising coordinator. So I got to know her work just through osmosis, and I was like, well, I actually find this rather interesting and a little bit more up my alley than some of the kind of direct programmatic work that I was engaged in. I am not, nothing against that. It's, it's, you know, incredibly important. It just wasn't, wasn't as much for me. So when I was looking for jobs after that, I started looking at more fundraising positions and I eventually found one sort of another junior role at a uh, organization that served the developmentally disabled in New England and just kind of kept doing that work from there.
0: So I had a very different intro into nonprofit. My uh, my degree is actually in fashion design, which is the farthest thing I feel like from a focus in nonprofit. I graduated college, though, in 2008 when everything was happening with the economy here and fell into for-profit work as a private art consultant. I did that for years. I moved to New York and was working in Chelsea and just it wasn't for me. I didn't love it. And ended up uh, working as a temp and landed a job at a pro bono municipal consulting firm that was tied to a major foundation here in New York and loved it. I ended up working on a project with some of my colleagues with the mayor of Athens, Greece, setting up their mayor's fund, which is something that we have here in New York. And we modeled it after what we set up in New York because of different rules and regulations, we did a uh, fundraising event for them here. It was my first time ever really looking at fundraising in general, and I was somehow tasked with bringing the wealthiest Greek Americans in New York into a room to pitch them to give money to this fund that wasn't even in this country. Put it together, wrote all the follow ups for them and just really found it so fascinating. And then when it was time to leave that foundation, started looking for for fundraising jobs in different sectors. And here I am.
2: (laughs) That's amazing. So, yes, very strange origin stories. But we're all in this together as superheroes. So thank you for all you do. I think the thing that calls us most to this type of work is that there's something in the mission that calls to us, something about the work, something about being a part of something bigger than ourselves that really attracts us to it, well, at least for me. But I'd like to hear from you, what is the most rewarding aspect of what you do
0: every day? So I think that there's a lot of things that make the work that we do so rewarding, for me personally, it is a mix of I'm an organizational freak. I love building all of this like organization in a nonprofit world, which is sometimes, as we all know, a little chaotic. But also, I'm able to support and bring in funds for people that are intelligent in a way that I could never imagine being. I don't have the brain to be coming up with all of these programs that help people who are fleeing from war and are seeing the things that some of our beneficiaries are seeing. So it's really an honor to be able to bring in funds that allow my brilliant colleagues to do the work that we're doing. And also, which is really great for the organization I work for is we also hire refugees. So some of my colleagues in programming and operations, but also in my department are refugees themselves. So being able to come to work every day and know that my friends and colleagues were able to receive the services that we raise money for.
3: To sort of piggyback on on what Katie was saying, I think one thing that's really rewarding is being able to do work in your day job where you know you're on the right side of some kind of issue. Much like the IRC, Catholic Charities of New York, where I work, uh, has some programs that benefit immigrants and refugees. And in the current political climate, every so often my office is tasked with administering some sort of rapid response appeal, fundraising appeal. Uh, usually on the heels of some unfortunate thing that was said or unfortunate policy that was enacted. It's, you know, often very, very tense and very rushed. And, you know, it definitely raises my blood pressure. But it is gratifying to know that, you know, I'm making a small contribution to do something that I think would would put our organization on the right side of history. And in a broader sense, I think it's great to be able to foster the connection between haves and have nots between people who, you know have a lot of resources and want to do something but don't necessarily know you know where to allocate those resources so creating that opportunity for the people who who can really make a change I think is is kind of the essential function of what we do
1: on the flip side with this work as our first episode talked about nonprofits tend to be very scrappy it can be very intense Environments, so would like to know uh, what's the most challenging aspect of being a fundraiser, and maybe talking to our listeners out there who are thinking of wanting to pursue a career or just finding their career path going into fundraising. What are some areas just to to kind of talk through of what to look out for?
3: So you kind of set it in the question. <laughs> it's, it's it's not it's not having resources. That's the biggest challenge. Um, specifically for what I do in in direct response fundraising, is uh, you know we're sending out. Direct mail, and we're sending out digital fundraising appeals, the same that you know a for-profit brand might send out. You know, the same mail that you might get from, uh, you know, your cable company, or the same email that you might get from some sort of apparel brand. You know, it's we're we're operating in that exact same space, but we don't have nearly the same magnitude of resources that Nike or Gap has. Uh, so, being able to Vie for people's attention in that exact same space is very challenging for a nonprofit that doesn't have a very big operating budget comparatively and has to necessarily operate on kind of a a leaner ratio than a, a for-profit enterprise. So trying to trying to accomplish your goals with less than what your you know hypothetical competition has is definitely a very very big challenge.
0: I. Totally agree with all of that. I think there's a never-ending list of challenges when looking at fundraising. Kind of key things that come to mind for me, though, is retention, both in staff, but also in our donors. In terms of retention for people who work in the fundraising world, we do have a a high turnover rate. So um, (laughs) as, as everyone giggles... We do have a high turnover rate. And with that comes change in protocols, policies, strategy. And it's really hard to be able to build that data baseline, those long-term relationships with high net worth donors when your staff is constantly turning over. And then kind of mirroring that into like donor retention. We have donor fatigue. We're looking at donors in that are of an older demographic who are starting to kind of hit their limits what are we going to do when we're exclusively looking at millennials and gen z to be our main donor base it's a completely different way of looking at philanthropy than what the baby boomers are so how do how do we address that as as fundraisers when we still need those boomer billionaires but are looking at those gen z just starting out people
1: I'm going to piggyback off of that, Katie, and uh ask if either of you have advice on relationship building, so yes, agreed that there is turnover, and that probably means too that both of you potentially have jumped from job to job too, and what has been your best tactic in getting to know your donors, building those relationships with your donors? What are you doing to be successful as a fundraiser?
0: <laughs> I guess <laughs> I guess i'll I'll start since I somehow made this question be asked to me. Um, So I'm kind of in an an interesting position because I'm actually more of a a support fundraiser. A huge part of my job is just building strategy. So I'm not really a donor-facing fundraiser. I'm the one who's kind of like sitting behind the scenes being like, well, this person knows this person, so they should probably make that ask. And then while they're making that ask, they should also make this connection. So it's really just being familiar with The donors in the city, the relationships that they have and making sure that you're aware of donor to donor relationships and really utilizing them. I'm sure Will's going to have a very different answer um, since he's probably more donor facing than I am. But for me, it's making sure that your strategies are matching the relationships that are there.
3: I don't know how donor-facing I am since I'm the the anonymous person on the internet who's blasting out emails to thousands of people. But I mean I I think if if the question is how do you actually build a relationship with your donors given the turnover rate that there is in fundraising, I think you know, part of the answer is just ignoring that reality to begin with because there's no way you can possibly develop a relationship with an individual if you have an expectation that, you know, you're going to be leaving anytime soon. I've, I've always found that, you know, building a relationship with this or that board member, it just necessarily takes time. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a relationship building uh, industry. So you're not gonna just get that rapport in your first three months on the job. It's going to take a sustained effort. So you just gotta, you know, if you're having an interaction with the donor, I'm of the mind that you gotta foresee yourself interacting with them for 10, 20 years down the road. And you should because, you know, the world is a much smaller place. We're in the biggest city in the United States and yet the fundraising profession can seem very, very small sometimes. So you definitely don't want to burn any bridges, even in a town as big as New York.
2: Katie, you kind of hit on this a little bit, but what do you see that we need to have in the future of fundraising for our sector to be sustainable? What, either what needs to change, because we are in a very traditional model that is the key here. Everywhere you go, you follow that same model. And you're in a great position because your GALA model is completely different than what is the norm. But what do you see we need to do or need to change to really ensure that our sector continues flourishing and really supporting all the causes
0: that we have in the world? That is a very good question. And I feel like kind of a difficult one to answer, but I think, just generally in nonprofit, we need to be thinking about the long term and we need to be building proper strategies and not letting not letting changes in staff, changes in leadership really change those l- longer term strategies that we're building into our models and looking at it as a sense of we, we know our donors, we know how to fundraise, we know our missions, what is that? five-year, 10-year plan for that particular donor and make sure that you're working towards that multi-year, multi-million dollar gift and building that into the larger fundraising strategy for your organization. It sounds so basic, but a lot of organizations don't really look at it as in that way. It's right now, it's what what is going to keep our lights on, what's going to keep the doors open, but we need to be thinking about Yes, that, but the longer term strategy is going to allow us to keep the doors open for so many more years. And it's better to be thinking ahead than being reactive. So much of the work that that we do at the IRC, that it sounds like Will does at his organization, is is reactive. The world is constantly changing, and we need to be prepared to respond to that and to be able to not have to worry about keeping our doors open or keeping a certain program alive. And we can do that through proper strategy with our larger donors.
3: So the, the question is for the sustaining the profession, correct? I mean if I if I can more directly kind of address one of the issues that you brought up earlier. Which is kind of the the rate of turnover in the fundraising profession, and you know I would say that is definitely something that would threaten the health of the profession, the health of the industry in the long term. Um, you know we know that we have a high turnover rate, and not only that, but there's a, a thinning talent pool that's out there. And so, if you actually want to you know continue to have talented people pursue fundraising and not have a thinning of that field, you need to figure out a way to attract more and retain more people, and the simplest solution is just, you know, pay people more and offer them more more opportunities <laughs> for professional development. I realize I'm making, I know, I realize I'm making a self interested point. Like, yeah, pay me more, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's 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 very important because uh, what what makes fundraisers and and marketers unique in the nonprofit sector is that they have a lot of the skills that can conceivably transfer into the for-profit sector. So that can be really great for individuals who can then seek out more competitive compensation or chart more, you know, interesting portfolio careers, get a wider breadth of experience, but it leaves a lot of nonprofits at a disadvantage because they can't necessarily compete with, you know, McKinsey or Pepsi or whoever else might be attracting some talent.
1: So I'm going to open it up to our audience. If there's any questions that anyone in our audience may have. Uh, I know that we have some people in our audience that are not nonprofit professionals. Do you have any questions around fundraising or how nonprofits operate that maybe this uh, discussion kind of piqued some interest?
2: I have a question. (laughs) Uh, Both of you, it sounds like both of you worked with really small organizations and you're now working at... Relatively large, well-known organizations. What was that shift like? What was it working on? Probably a really small team to having all this support and and tons of people doing many different jobs. I'd love to hear about that.
0: Uh, So, as I mentioned before, I came from for-profit. I worked for a huge gallery. I my first job in nonprofit was from a funder's side, and it was a huge foundation. My very first job in fundraising was for a very small organization. I was the only fundraiser, only events person for the New York City chapter. And let me tell you, being the only fundraiser and events person trying to put on 30 plus events and trying to keep the lights on and doors open for that chapter was interesting, (laughs) to say the least. Interesting is a kind way of putting it. It was very challenging. And I think coming to... A larger organization it was a breath of fresh air but also seeing a lot of like very similar challenges of being put in a position to like advocate for this is a resource that I need to be successful it's just on a very different scale and the this the stakes are obviously very different I think it takes a very particular personality to be happy and thrive in a small organization and I have so much respect for those people and I've recognized now that that's just not who I am as a fundraising professional I like the larger organizations I like being able to to have the resources to have the the data sets that I want to be able to inform the work that I'm doing where at a smaller organization you're Scraping for those data sets, and I, I like those numbers they 're fun to play with
4: i think
3: I think one of the um, interesting things about making that shift was I, was I was at a really small organization with a budget less than two million dollars a year, and moving to Catholic charities, which you know has a much much larger budget and a much much larger staff in any case I, I, the, the big challenge with the small nonprofit was you necessarily have to wear a lot of different hats and so you 're a fundraiser, but at the same time you know you're the official photographer for the organization and also you're the official volunteer manager and also you are the HR person and also you are the bookkeeper because, you know, the real bookkeeper is out sick that week. So now all of a sudden you're the bookkeeper and you have kind of, and then all of a sudden the executive director is out sick. So all of a sudden you're the, you know, you are managing the board as well. So kind of things like that happen at a small organization. A large organization, you're covered. You're covered for for a lot of those sort of uncertainties but you're also confronted with a lot more bureaucracy which is itself its own kind of jungle that you have to navigate so that that's what i would say would be kind of the the biggest shift where and in a small nonprofit you know you need to have a bias towards action and at a larger nonprofit you need to have a bias more towards input you know seeking out all the other stakeholders and other departments and you know your, your other donors and your other staff because there's just more people around.
0: Hi, I just had a question. So, fundraising to me seems very insecure. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty around it, hence the strategy component. I mean, do you see fundraising as intrinsically tied to nonprofits, or is there like a future strategy where you don't have to rely on this uncertainty? It just makes me anxious. <laughs> like, I could never do it, you know? It's like... Is that just part and parcel of nonprofits? I'm just curious.
3: Uh, it sort of depends on on what your revenue model is for a nonprofit organization. I think the dream would be, you know, like a Silicon Valley billionaire just decides that they're going to fund your organization indefinitely, and you never have to worry about money, and you can just focus on your work. Um, you know, you could look at a whole range of nonprofits though, and how they manage to sustain themselves. Universities are technically nonprofits and they charge they charge tuition and they have endowments and they have other fees or they have athletic teams you know there 's a lot of other different kind of ways that revenue comes in. Fundraising is one of the ways to to diversify that Catholic charities itself has various government contracts that help sustain a lot of its programs and get some support from other areas so it's we we are not our office is not solely responsible for every single dollar that comes in and every single dollar that is spent on programming. But it is still certainly important to make sure that you have that that diversification of revenue.
0: Yeah, kind of to like yes and you. <laughs> Endowments are a huge part of it. Um, we do have a, an endowment for our organization, but it's also looking at planned giving, which is getting in people's wills. And that's also like a huge part of it. There's a a large effort that goes behind getting to be in that kind of position as an organization. And it's something that I know absolutely nothing about, but find terribly fascinating. All I know is the woman that sits next to me is always on the phone with lawyers. That's my insight into it. But it is looking at like, we, we operate very much so with contracts with companies outside of individual giving, a lot of government grants. I think it's again like your revenue model. Like, are you looking at raising money and investing it and then finding a way to make that money sustainable? But that is a very difficult model to function on because trying to sell a donor on give me a million dollars, I'm going to invest it and eventually it's going to pay off is a really hard sell when you could say, I need a million dollars. I'm going to feed X number of people and in, in that sort of thing. So a lot of donors are looking for, depending on what sector you work in and cultural, it's putting a name into a museum or in one of our sectors where it's like, I want to see what I put my money towards. They're trying to build their legacies in a lot of uh, instances. And unfortunately, endowment is not part of that for a lot of donors.
4: And I think that's this might be a good segue for the question that I'm about to ask. I wanted to shift the uh, just talk a little bit more about instead of fundraising, the fund using of it, aspect of it. What you were just alluding to, are we? Uh, I feel uh, from an outsider's point of view, it looks it looks and sounds like a uh, it could be a loop where the more they see a return uh, in their um, and. Um, don't want to use the word investment, but it's it, they're giving. What is the value that that is being delivered from their money? And in a basic model, I'm 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 imagining that they um, you know bring the money in and it goes into a pool, and then the pool goes into um, going in. You're you're helping a lot of different aspects of it. So, are they actually? Do they have visibility into what is actually? How their money is being used, and could that help enhance some of the uh, aspects of increasing the funding on the fr- upfront as well? I would love to hear that. Yeah, well, you start. got into like
3: one of the biggest topics. Yeah, <laughs> <In fundraising. laughs> So So, uh, as you may or may not know, uh, nonprofit financials are, uh, you know, usually very transparent. Uh, they are obligated by law to disclose. Their uh, activities, their their tax statements that are filed with the IRS are um, publicly available. So you can see how uh, expenses are allocated at almost any nonprofit, depending on both the type and the size of the nonprofit. But I'd say the vast majority of nonprofits that you can think of would have kind of... These documents publicly available for anybody to review, and uh, I believe it's even a law that if you physically walk into a nonprofit, you can request these documents. I, I, you can you can you can demand them, and they have to, to furnish them within like twenty four hours or something like that. It's one of those weird laws from from way back when. But yeah, they they uh, nonprofits are obligated to furnish. I think like a hard copy if it is so demanded from a member of the public. Um, in terms of Donors being interested about where their funds are going—that's uh, ever a source of tension for fundraisers. Uh, what what a lot of fundraisers would prefer is just unrestricted fundraising dollars. Basically, y- you give a nonprofit money, and then they can spend it as they see fits. The trend I feel like has been, especially with a lot of uh, deep-pocketed donors, uh, more towards restricted fundraising. You know. I want to fund this scholarship or I want to fund this specific program, which, you know, ensures that your mother your, your your money is going into that exact area, but it creates sort of resource allocation issues for the nonprofit itself because they have this big chunk of cash that has to go here. They have that much less flexibility for how they can then spend in other areas. So it's it's sort of a it, it, these these are two philosophies that are kind of um, at war with one another, making sure that everything is going towards the programs, or making sure that nonprofits are empowered to kind of act as they see fit. Uh,
1: just to add to that, that this is a huge debate in our industry right now around whether donors should be more flexible with giving us money for. Overhead, essentially, is what it's called, or unrestricted funds. And that goes to rent, that goes to personnel salary, people that do, like myself, bookkeeping, finance, HR, operations, Uh, my salary, fundraisers as well, is, is paid by unrestricted funding. And it's also, how are we as an organization supposed to grow ourselves and see our mission come to fruition if we don't have the funds to really invest in technology, into human resources, into just the resources that Will was talking about earlier of, uh, you know, we're, we're scrappy, we're wearing a lot of different hats. And if you're continuing to do restricted funding, it's harder and harder for us to be able to expand our organizations and really support Internally, uh, around the the operations side, so uh, funders like the Ford Foundation, they have what's called the Build Grant, to where they're giving a lot of organizations. Not to like name drop them, but they are a huge uh, foundation in this movement of nonprofits. Need unrestricted funding to help them grow, and to help us operate, and to do it efficiently as well.
0: Just to kind of like piggyback on all of that. I'm in a very specific role of I exclusively raise unrestricted funding, which is great because it allows us to really invest in the organization, but a huge part of, of all of it, I think for uh, especially larger organizations, is being really transparent about the percentage of money that comes in every year that goes to programming. I think the IRC currently is 86% of our funds go to our beneficiaries, which is a really high percentage in in the industry. What I was, yeah. But there's also uh, instances where a donor might say, I want to give you this amount of money for this specific program, but if you look at it the the resources and the cost to actually implement that is not worth it. A previous organization that I was working with, a donor said, "I want to give you ten thousand dollars to buy soccer balls for refugee children." different organization, let me just say and we said that's great, but we don't need $10,000 worth of soccer balls. We need $10,000 worth of educational tools with medications, food, anything other than soccer balls. Like That's great, but we don't have the resources to really provide that. So it's looking at weighing the the funding that's being offered to us with what we actually need as an organization and hoping that our donor base is going to trust us as the experts in our fields to execute in the way that we need to, to be successful and to reach the donor or the beneficiaries that we need.
4: Does that answer Quick it? follow-up question. I, I think it does. And I, I just, um, to your last point, how, what are we as an industry and as a, as professionals doing to um, enhance that trust that you were just talking about? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, so... <laughs> What I heard from a couple of people was that uh, you're looking for unrestricted funding that they, the donors, trust you to use wisely. It's sounding like there's a disconnect between the donors and the, um, um, you know, uh, it, people at the on on the uh, the end users. What are we doing to build f- further enhance and build that trust?
0: Um, I think that's a great question. I think a part of that is making sure that part of that grant that comes in from a donor is making sure that it's going to cover the costs of us reporting back to you. Nonprofits are getting better and better every year with our metrics and the being able to measure our impacts. So thank you so much for giving us X number of dollars, for feeding X number of people in whatever country. But you want to know that we've actually done that, but we still need money and resources to be able to track that. It is an additional fee, so it's making sure that that cost is covered in those grants as they come in so we can continue to prove that we are the experts in the field that are addressing these issues. And I think our donors are getting to a point of of really knowing and understanding that and really appreciating the the data sets that come along with the money that they're giving us, even if it is restricted.
1: Um, actually, Adam, from our last episode that we did from UPenn, uh, talked about this too, but more from like grant funders and talking about how a lot of grants are provided and it's like a year grant, here's X amount of money to do some short term Output of uh, serve X amount of people meals or et cetera. Uh, and his comment was of thinking more into the long term. Like we as a nonprofit industry need the multi year grants because the first year is planning that project, getting it going, and then we can actually implement it. And then we can have that funds to start looking at tracking that data and what our impact is and having those multi-year grants allow us to operate more efficiently and uh, actually being able to show the impact of the work that we're doing and how we're reaching our mission. So it is a change in the way that how our industry operates right now of really wanting to think more towards the long term and the sustainability of the work that we're doing.
2: No, because I also want to say I think it's having these conversations with you who isn't in the nonprofit sector. We need a it's a big education awareness raising monster. There's a lot of really well known large nonprofits that operate on this a hundred percent of everything you give goes directly to a person in Africa or what have you, which is very commendable and really impressive. But think of it as they're coming from a place of very high privilege because they got to fund all of their operations because they had all these donors that do that every year. So yeah, you and me every day, if we give $100 to them, $100 of that will go to a program. But I think it's having those conversations and letting people know that it takes a lot of people, it takes a lot of resources to run a nonprofit and do a great thing. So I'm glad you asked that.
0: So what you just said made me think of this point as well, but nonprofits are hiring really qualified, really intelligent people. And to be competitive, to have these brilliant minds in these industries, we have, they have to have competitive salaries. I'm sure all of us could be in the for-profit industry making at least double what we make now. So it's making sure that we're able to pay people at least a moderately competitive salary so they are able to make the impacts that nonprofits are expected to make. If you want skilled, intelligent people, you have to pay them the same amount that they'd be making in for profit or close to.
1: Well, thank you, Katie and Will. This was an awesome conversation. And thank you for our audience for engaging and asking questions. As always, to our listeners, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. We are at NP Collective Pod. And thank you so much for listening.